On this episode of AvTalk, we welcome back Seth Miller to discuss his recent adventures on a variety of Japanese low-cost carriers and his flight on the Comac ARJ-21. He also fills us in on the status of Operation Puerto Rico Carelift and the upcoming Operation Gift Lift. We also recap the massive order book of the Dubai Air Show and check in on a few A380s that have been in the news. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, as always here with... Jason Rabinowitz. Welcome and thank you for listening. We are back with... We're almost to 20 episodes. We're closing in on 20 episodes and we're going to do a little something special for episode 20, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. You haven't been doing any traveling in the, in the past two weeks, have you? Why'd you remind me of that? Now I'm depressed. Okay. I'm just I'm just making sure that you've gotten a little a little sleep. Well, I didn't say I got any sleep, but I haven't been doing any traveling. I'll make up well, for that soon, though. All right. At least you haven't been up for 48 hours before we record this time. So that's no, I guess, no. I'm, I'm good, and I got hot water, so I could take a shower and everything. Everything's coming up no house. Yeah. We are going to talk to Seth Miller a little bit later on in the program, who has been doing a lot of traveling to some very interesting places on some very interesting airlines. So I'm looking forward to that conversation in, in a few minutes. Lucky. <laughs> we should start with, with the big news in the aviation world in the past two weeks, which is the massive order book that has come out of the Dubai Air Show. Massive is probably the right word. I went to the Dubai Air, so the last time it was held in 2015, and there were uh, 67 orders according to Flight Global, and I can confirm because it was pretty boring. This year, there were 874 orders, more orders than in 2013, 2011, and I don't think the stats go back much further than that, but it was an absolutely huge year for narrow body orders, which is surprising. One of the orders actually was the second largest aircraft order in history, I believe. It's a pretty massive, pretty massive haul for, for both Boeing and Airbus in, in the short haul, or not short haul, but single aisle aircraft. I mean, just if we combine them, it's over 400 aircraft by Indigo Partners. So Indigo Partners is comprised of Wizz Air, Frontier, JetSmart, and Volaris down in Mexico. They ordered 430 aircraft in total, 72 A320neo for Wiz, 74 A321, 100 A320neo for Frontier with 34 A321neos. JetSmart, I don't, I've never even heard of them. 56 A320neo, 14 321. Volaris gets 46 320s and 34 321neos. So they're going all over the place and I should really find out who JetSmart is. They're based in Chile. Oh, well, there you go. Well, there you uh, go. Latam's going to have some competition. Yeah, and I mean, and then on the Boeing side, Fly Dubai with with what was it, two hundred and twenty five seven three seven Max. Yeah, one hundred seventy five so. firm fifty options, I believe. And there were other smaller orders all over the place. Even forty five seven eight sevens for. Emirates picked up 40, what was it, 45787, I'm, I'm sorry, not well, 70. Well, 40, 40 10s. Right, there it is. For Emirates. And that was that was kind of the the big scoop out from the, the A350 order that they moved over to Boeing. So that's right. The other a, five 787s seven, were Azerbaijan, actually, to round out that 45. Even the C-Series got some action. We had mentioned yeah. this a couple couple podcasts ago, but 24 Bombardier C-Series, or sorry, Airbus, 
C-Series <laughs> to Egypt Air. It's the Bombardier C-Series by Airbus. Right. Sponsored by Airbus. I think that was, yeah, 12, 24 12, of those. 12 and 12, I think. Yeah, the, 12 and 12. I don't know what that. the split is because it says above 300s, but maybe some firm, maybe some options. Even Scat, one of my favorite weirdo airlines from like Kazakhstan, I think. Ordered six firm, 737 MAX, eight, five on option. Air Senegal ordered two A330 Neos. What else do we have here? Golden Falcon Aviation ordered 25 A320 Neo. Don't know who they are. Nordic Aviation got the only Bombardier Q400 orders at the show with two. So there were a lot of orders, but mostly for, for narrow body aircraft, which is very unusual for the Middle East. Well, I mean, and and that's been one of the big kind of big storylines to come out of there is with the with Fly Dubai's, you know, big max order. I mean, the the feeder push really really coming in Emirates and then the 787-10 order with the realization and I think it was John Ostrar that that mentioned this is that you know, A380s and and 777-300ERs, you know, aren't the only airplanes in you don't need to send them everywhere. Right. And Fly du- I think he also said Fly Dubai is basically Emirates Express at this point, especially with the new interior Fly Dubai put on the seven, their first 73 Max, which has a really nice economy cabin with long haul style seats and even fully flat beds in business class up front on a 737, which I don't think has ever been done commercially really for for regular flight operations it looks a lot like JetBlue's mint cabin but on a slightly narrower a320 sorry 737 so it just it's very very fascinating the transition flight dubai is making yeah it'll be it'll be interesting to see how all of these end up i mean and we're looking at you know orders in 2017 we're looking at delivery starting in the 2020s and I think for for the Indigo Partners order with the the 430 A320 Neo families, most of those are for delivery in 2025 and 2026. I mean, so the it kind of sets the stage for almost 10 years from now, a big change in how airlines are going. So it'll be interesting to see what happens as those deliveries start to to come out. But that's a lot of airplanes. Yeah, yeah. I think Flight Global has the stats at eight hundred twenty-five narrow-body aircraft ordered, forty-seven wide-body and two turboprop. It's super, super strange to see the Middle Eastern airlines gobbling up narrow bodies. It's uh, it's a huge change. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, but it, we we kind of knew it was coming. I mean, with it with had the, to. Yeah, well, I mean, with the, I guess looking at what's been happening between Emirates and, and and their kind of A380, 777 only operation and the other, you know, kind of major players there. It's it's something had to give. Yeah, it turns out you can't operate a 600-seat A380 between Dubai and Qatar every day. Just doesn't make sense. Or at least not on, not on you know, eight flights a day or something. Oh, wait. You can't operate between Dubai and Qatar, period. Oops. Well, yeah, but that's, yeah. Yeah, there that's, is that. That's going, that's going back a few episodes. Yeah. Oops. Speaking of A380s, we've got two little bits of A380-related news to, to get into. One, the A380, the Air France A380 in Goose Bay is... is slowly on its way to getting fixed that thing is still there it's, been it's forever. still there so 
There's an Antonov AN-124 in Dubai right now. It's going to head up to Paris and pick up an engine, carry an engine over to Goose Bay, and then pick up the disabled engine, and, or the damaged engine, I suppose it's disabled, disabled as well. Disabled is a little well. too kind for that. Yeah. Exploded engine works. Yeah, there you go. And that's going to go over to Cardiff is going to be the first stop. And then from there, I'm not exactly sure where they're taking it for further inspection. But that's going to be underway. It should be delivered this Thursday or Friday and carried out the, the following day. That's on its way. So and then, yeah. So they're basically flying out an engine all the way to Goose Bay, Canada to put it on an A380. And then they won't even be turning it on to fly it home. Correct. They're basically bringing a an engine, and and Air France hasn't said exactly how they're going to do this. And, and I think we talked about this in in a previous episode, but it's worth recapping because it's just so crazy. They have to have the fourth engine because no one's ever flown an A380 without the four engines. So nobody has any idea how it would perform. So they have to have the fourth engine on there as weight and balance. From there, they can either windmill it or basically cover the core and take the fan off so that there's just kind of the engine pod sitting there. And they haven't said which one they're going to do yet. And it's very interesting. Dave Walsworth, the British Airways captain, published this, and we talked about this when he did, kind of a long list of what would have to happen for them to to get through the list. And, and we'll throw a link back to that episode because I think it's worth revisiting as they get ready to, to bring the, the aircraft back. But It'll be interesting to see which option they end up going with and, and whether or not we get to, to kind of get some insight into how they end up doing it. Yeah, I wonder if they'll even divulge what how they did it or really any of the details. They, they may just not. Well, I, I hope they go the Swiss route and kind of own the fact that they're getting it fixed. I don't know if our listeners might remember, Jason, if you remember uh, earlier in the year, a Swiss 777 had an engine issue that required an engine replacement in I do uh, in it a went in the little igloo. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And and they made they Swiss kind of owned owned the process because it was such a cool thing and, and such a remote diversion that they, they really got everybody together and and kind of said this is how we fix things and, and showed a bit behind the scenes in the process and, and allowed a lot some people some access. So I, I hope that's the route they go. Saying, you know, that something broke we're getting to the bottom of that, but this is how we fix things. And this is, you know, we're proud of our people that are, that are working on this project. I hope that's what they do, but we'll, we'll see. have to wait and see. Yep. We should talk more A380. We should talk more. We have more A380s to talk. Well, we, we have, we have one right now and up to five to discuss. Up to, and including to. five. Yeah. So we talked about a few episodes ago about the X Singapore A380s that, Singapore's letting go back on lease because they were the first production ones. They're a little they're a little heavier than the others. They're less fuel efficient, et cetera, et cetera. And so the first one has now been returned to to the leasing agent and it's being stored and awaiting its next mission. Next customer. So the the question becomes who gets to use it? And and this week some news came out that Highfly, we had previously talked about Highfly operating these and questioning how they would do this. And so now it comes out that Garuda Indonesia and Royal Air Maroc might be the the kind of 
I don't even know what you call it, the the airlines behind the high fly operation. Which makes sense in a strictly Hodge flight scenario, because they both of these airlines sure. ramp up their operations pretty significantly during a very specific time of the year, during the Hodge pilgrimage, when they all fly out to the to the region where they all, all all of these airlines in the region really hugely ramp up their operations and lease aircraft from from anywhere they possibly can. I could see them needing it for a couple weeks out of the year, especially for for Ram since their largest aircraft is one single 747-400 and the rest of their fleet is basically 787-8s at this point. It's not even a dash nine. So that would be a huge huge capacity boost for them but do they really need it the rest of the year what are they going to do with it i mean i don't know party bus maybe i oh, you know just that'd be cool drive it around kind of cool. hotel i i don't know yeah it, that, that's that's the problem with these a380s on, on lease is that no one knows what to do with them sure garuda and ram can use them for a couple of weeks but then what if anybody knows that silence is your answer, nobody knows. Podcast at fr24.com. Because I mean, my initial when I heard Garuda and, and Royal Air Rock, uh, I of course thought, okay, Hajj pilgrimage charter flights, that makes perfect sense. But I mean, does that, I, I can't see that being a, a year round necessity. No, I, I mean, everyone is struggling to figure out what to do with these things from us to aviation geeks to the people who own the planes. I, what is the guy? Dr. Peters or something? Dr. Like that, Peters. That, that yeah. owns, that actually owned and leased these A380s to Singapore and now has to figure out, is it worth it to figure out who to lease it to and, and keep doing that till the end of the frame's useful life or... Just say, screw it, we're going to scrap it right now for and turn it into beer cans. Uh, that could be a likely outcome. Yeah, I mean, they, they even said that that was definitely a possibility that was still on the table, pending you know a, a final agreement with any of the leasing agents. So, so we'll see. We only will, only we time will, will tell. And there's going to be a, a bunch of these coming up off lease soon. So I can't imagine they're all going to find a home. So if you have a few dollars to spare, send it to Dr. Peters and maybe you'll get your very own A380. Maybe that's what we should do. Just yeah, kind of you know, fun. scrape some change together and, and have an A380. It, it'll be fun. Yeah, sure. Dangerous, Speaking but fun. Speaking of fun, yeah, it'll be fine. Let's take a quick break and then bring Seth in for a little bit of conversation about what he's been up to in Japan, in China, and in Florida, which is a really great story that he has to share. So let's take a quick break and we'll be back with Seth Miller. As promised, we are back with Seth Miller, aviation journalist and friend of the show, a returning guest. Seth has been a, a very busy man and he's done some, some interesting things that we've been pretty odd by and we want to say congratulations possibly Thank you. for Thank being you. the the <laughs> thirty thousandth person to fly on the arj we think maybe and we're, we're we're bestowing the title because why not it happened while i was there when i was there i, I the best i can do is say yeah it was me 
so we we brought you on to talk about a few things. Yes. The first of which, and, and probably really the, the most impactful and most important, is the work that you've been doing to help out the folks in, in Puerto Rico. You also did the Delta A350 inaugural. You flew on a bunch of Japanese low-cost carriers. And then last, but certainly not least, because anytime you can lay the claim to being the 30,000th anything, that's a milestone on the Comac ARJ. Absolutely. So, so welcome back, and let's dive into, uh, tell us about what you've been doing in the aftermath of the hurricane in, in Puerto Rico to to help people out, and, and how that kind of ties into some aviation stuff. Sure. So Hurricane Maria, as everyone knows, devastated Puerto Rico. Uh, the island is still struggling to get reliable power and water and other functions back online. The infrastructure is just decimated. And through a group of friends, you know, it's one of those things that starts simple. Someone started a GoFundMe project and said, hey, let's try to raise some money and figure out how we can get some stuff and get it delivered. And raising the money part was relatively easy. The getting stuff once you have money is relatively easy. Getting it delivered turns out to be really hard, especially to an island. And through a group of friends, Chris Sloan over at Airways slash Archive and a bunch of other folks got involved. And They called on Spirit Airlines. Spirit Airlines, based in Fort Lauderdale, has a lot of lift down into Puerto Rico and also uses the Lufthansa Technic facility at Aguadilla for their MRO, for a lot of their sea checks. And the folks at Lufthansa Technic were willing to cooperate. The folks at Spirit were spectacularly cooperative. And what we ended up with was more than $250,000 in cash plus indirect supply donations and a ton of belly capacity on Spirit Airlines planes. Had somewhere between 10 and 15 flights. Some were commercial service. Some were the SeaCheck ferry flights where we had 18,000 pounds of cargo loaded in. And I spent a week down in the Fort Lauderdale warehouse and in Miami and Hialeah helping sort the goods, helping with the purchases, helping get things repackaged and done. And I got to tell you, it was an absolutely incredible experience. Did you actually make it down there to Puerto Rico with some of the flights? I did not go. It's funny you mentioned that because we're going to come to... That was Operation Puerto Rico Carelift is what we called the first half of that. And we were producing boxes of food, essentially 40-pound boxes. It's important to know Spirit doesn't do cargo. And what we were shipping was all cargo. So we had to repackage pallets full of you know various non-perishable supplies into what appeared to be 40-pound suitcases. And it turns out a 14-inch cube cardboard box filled with black beans and you know soup and this and that and whatnot some you know, toiletries and such comes out right at 40 pounds if you if you plan it correctly and it fills the box with the stuff we need so we ended up packing a couple thousand of those boxes we had a great group of volunteers who showed up we had some great logistics help and just we crushed it we really did it was an incredible experience that part of the project wrapped up for the most part. And where we're at now is what we're calling Operation Puerto Rico Gift Lift. And I'll make sure that we have a copy of the URL to put in the show notes for that. But we're trying to, you know, take into account the fact that while things are starting to get back to normal a little bit in Puerto Rico, and it's we're still nowhere close, but they're starting to get back to normal. We also have families that basically lost everything. And with Christmas, Hanukkah, and whatever other holidays coming up in the next few weeks, really trying to help out and get some supplies down to Puerto Rico to help those families celebrate a little bit where we can and give the kids something to celebrate. So 
this next round, we are once again, you know, raising some funds cash. We've got on the GoFundMe page, there's also a link to an Amazon shopping list if you want to shop that way and donate like that. And trying to gather, there's, again, Spirit has been a huge contributor here with three more airplanes worth of cargo capacity. And we're trying to fill those up with gifts and toys with the ultimate goal of, on December 10th, a Christmas party in Aguadilla. And I'm hoping to be on the flight for that one. So that's the, that's the answer to your question, Jason, is I haven't been yet, but I'm hoping to go for Christmas. Good answer. That's pretty amazing work since the situation down there is still pretty dire. It is. Uh, and it, I, I got to say, like, it, this was one of those things we almost, you know, we had to start turning some people away, believe it or not, who were like, well, I've got all this stuff too. And it was hard because we want to take everything. We want to get it all down there. And it was just stuff that wasn't packaged right or couldn't get to our warehouse in time and things like that. But also it shows just how much people wanted to help, wanted to do good, wanted to make all this stuff happen, and how fortunate we were to have partners like Spirit Airlines, like Lufthansa Technic, like some of the other corporate folks that got involved on the donation and collection side of things. It was just, you know, Nickelodeon donated a whole bunch of stuff. They had done a food drive and they didn't know how to get it where it needed to be. And we were able to help them out and pick up the stuff and help transport it. Just lots of stuff like that. It was amazing how it came together. And spending a week doing that was really probably one of the highlights of my year, which is saying something considering I'm an av geek. I love planes and the stuff I did in the three weeks after that, which is the, you know, right. <laughs> what I thought we were going to talk about on today's show. And you're exactly right. We, we, I think we mentioned this on a prior podcast that even people that had, had donated things to organizations, they had no means to actually get it to the island because there was just no infrastructure or flights or even operational seaports to get supplies to Puerto Rico. So these airlifts that Spirit was doing were really, really helpful. Yeah, it's been, it's been incredible. Just, you know, working with the people that are spending time in the warehouse, these are people that were doing their regular job too. And then, you know, you know, for a free pizza every now and then would hang out after hours and help move, you know, 10,000 pounds of bottled water in, you know, the flats of 24 bottles at a time, help load those up into an airplane. It's just, it's really incredible to see people who recognize the value of what we were doing and how important it really is. Yeah, I mean, it, it is really great work. And to kind of follow that up with a with a way to bring, bring a little bit of joy and, and not just, you know, the basics, but kind of a little bit of normalcy back to some kids, I, I think is a really great way to go about things too. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's, it's not nearly as critical necessarily because as food and water were, but at the same time, giving, you know, actually, like you said, a sense of normalcy and just some sort of, you know, regular life. So they don't necessarily have to think about, are we going to have dinner tonight? Um, is really, really exciting. Yeah, that's great. And and you had mentioned this was one of your highlights of 2017. And I'm jealous that you, you got to help so many people, but I'm also jealous of the trip you had in Japan recently, because I've hosted this podcast from Japan. I love that. I love the region. But you did something even I haven't done recently. And how many airlines did you fly in Japan in how many days? I did five airlines in 44 hours, I think. I mean, I'm not going to ask you why, because I've traveled with you enough to every corner of the world to know there doesn't need to be an answer to that. Yeah, but the answer is how be- was because it? I could. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a, this was one of the, I was on the A350 inaugural for Delta and got to try premium select product out. Big fan of premium economy in general. I think Delta did a very nice job with their product. A couple little quirks in the seat, like not enough storage space, in my opinion, but overall great product. But because I had that ticket and I had a one-way ticket to Japan to cover that story. And so 
I could have turned around and came straight home. A bunch of people on the flight did that. But I had a little flexibility in my schedule and figured I should stay for a couple days and do something because I was already in Japan. And I've done Tokyo a few times enough that I could have found something to do, but wasn't really what I was looking for and started thinking. And it turns out that Air Asia Japan had just returned to service. That was right at the beginning of the month. At the end, I of think they have all of two planes right now. Two, two A320s flying. But when that happened, I decided, huh. Like I saw that headline come up. I said, huh, maybe I should try to fly them while I'm there. And then we went and looked, and they fly between Nagoya and New Chitos Airport, CTS, up in the north. And I wasn't going to be in either of those airports. So I was either going to have to take a train or fly to get there, to one end or the other, and then you know back to Tokyo to get home. And then the, the sort of gears started turning in my brain. I said, well, if I have to fly anyways, why don't I fly a different low-cost carrier to get there? And then a different low-cost carrier to get home. And then started sort of adding them up. And then it became a game of how many different unique routes and low-cost carriers could I combine in a basically the 48 hours between when I landed at 4 p.m. on Tuesday and Thursday at 3 p.m. when the flight took off back to New York. So you, f- you flew AirAge of Japan, a brand new airline. Yep. You flew Starflyer, an airline that apparently was incredibly difficult to book. You flew Jal on a seven six seven. You flew. What were the other two? No, so you did them in. You did them out of order, and now I'm all sorts of confused. Was it vanilla or peach? Both or both? Both. Both. Okay. I did. Perfect. I did vanilla first, so I did a quick connection at Tokyo, a couple hours to switch terminals over the LCC terminal. Had some dinner, hopped on a plane, and flew to Osaka that night, Kansai International. Stayed out by the airport. Flew from and went to bed that night pretty quickly after I arrived. The next morning was up early and flew to Fukuoka on Peach, which is, it's interesting. That's a very much a downtown airport. You know, the, the airlines were all fine. The airlines were all fun. There was some, you know, good and bad on all of them. Peach didn't have the toys in the galley cart that I wanted to buy. So, like, oh, do I no. give them demerit points for that? I don't know. The, the for shame. Were, they were it's super Japan. polite if about they don't it. Have, if they don't have the little toys they're advertising, it's a major failure. But they were super polite about it, so I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and then I got to, but Fukuoka, you know, after flying in and out of Kansai, which is way, way out of town relative to Osaka, you know, flying into Fukuoka, which is right in the heart of the city. It's two stops on the metro to, like, the heart of downtown. Wow. That was pretty cool. And you come in right over the water and then right over land. And then suddenly, you know, you're on the buildings and then you're on the ground. It was really neat. And then flew from there to Nagoya, which is another sort of out of town airport. That was the Starflyer segment was to Nagoya. And then AirAsia Japan was from Nagoya up to Nuchitos and then JAL back down to Haneda. So I want to talk about Starflyer, who's always kind of pegged my interest a little bit because it doesn't look anything like a low-cost carrier at all it's got pretty good legroom, black leather seats usb port seat back entertainment which may or may not actually work depending on who you talk to but it looks like a it looks like virgin america basically on the inside how was it it was i think that you described it pretty accurately it, it is not an lcc in experience at all it's part of the ana world so they actually, all the flights, or most of the flights have ANA code shares on them. And to huh. the point, and I could have booked it that way through ANA. It would have cost three times as much. And I decided I didn't want to do that. You know, because paying $300 when I can pay Probably a good idea. 100 is seems like a bad idea. 
is this kind of the thing where they only open up the lowest fare buckets if you book directly? Or? It's They actually, they have essentially a tourist fare. And a bunch of airlines in Japan are a bunch of, the like, ANA and JAL have done this in the past as well, which they have a sort of a visit Japan pass. And if, if you're an international arrival with your passport and you can show your onward or arrival ticket and a visitor visa stamp or passport stamp, rather than a permanent resident or long-term resident, you can buy these cheap tickets. And it's a way to get tourists to explore more. Hmm. The challenge is that it was only bookable direct with Starflyer. The website is 100% Japanese only. There's like some of the About Us stuff. They have an English version, but that wasn't very helpful. And so booking was Jap- Japanese only. The phone numbers listed were not available to me from outside the country, which I haven't quite figured out how that works. But like even dialing the country code, different city codes, all sorts of things could not get through to them. And trying to use my credit card on their website didn't work. And So how did you end up doing it? As you're aware, in Japan, connections to the international banking system are not always easy. If you want an ATM, no. you've got to basically go to a 7-Eleven. Like every other bank ATM does not connect to the rest of the world. It's okay. Just load up your little tappy card in, in Tokyo anyway and sure. you can use it anywhere in the yeah, country. Yeah, use a Passmo or Suico card. Once you and, figure out how to load it up. But you need cash to do that, right? So it's it's a complicated system. I ended up calling in a favor with a friend who happened to be living there at the time. This was not a trivial or easy booking by any stretch. Making the reservation was easy. I could do the reservation with Google Translate on the Japanese website and got through it all and had the PNR and eventually, you know, texted my buddy a PNR and asked him to text me back how much it cost and then did a PayPal transfer to him. But getting the Starflyer ticket, certainly on these discount fares, which the irony is these are for visitors to Japan and you can't buy them unless you have a Japanese credit card, it seems. Yeah, the irony is not lost here. So, yeah, we, we want to give you guys cheap fares and help you explore our country, except we won't sell it to you. We're very sorry. Well, they just want you to learn Japanese, Seth. The language wasn't the problem. I couldn't use a U.S.-based card. That's bizarre. Did you try a debit card? Maybe it's no credit, debit only. I, I mean, Japan is just really weird. I did banking, not like try you mentioned. a debit card. I should have. Maybe I'll, you know, go buy another ticket just in case. Next time. Yeah. That's, so. a, that's a great reason to, to visit Japan again, just to just see, see if a different card will work. You guys know I could buy the ticket without having to go to Japan and fly it, right? But what's the fun? Not at all, but... And then we're back to the, because I could. Right. Exactly. So, speaking of because you could, you were between Japan and we were on the United 747 final flight, and sometime after that. or after or before... You were also in China doing other crazy things. Yes, I I went from Honolulu on to Chengdu, China, via San Francisco. As one does. As one does. I had a conference in Shanghai, and the timing of it was such that I figured I should go over a couple days early and get over jet lag because I was presenting at this conference. And also, I was already on the West Coast, so why not just head over a few days early? And Chengdu is one of the secondary cities United Airlines flies to. They fly it on a 787. I figured, why not? I'll give it a go. Nice flight over. And then I had a week in Chengdu. So similar to Japan, I have a friend who lives in China. And he flew out from Beijing, and we hung out for a couple days and saw the pandas and things like that. But from an aviation perspective, one of the things that makes Chengdu really interesting is, A, it's the fourth largest or busiest airport in China. I had no idea. Who knew? And B... Chengdu Airlines is hubbed there, and Chengdu Airlines is the only commercial operator of the ARJ-21-700, 
which is the only model of the ARJ-21 flying. It is an aviation oddity still, basically. It's a Frankenplane. If you've ever seen a picture, it looks like a Boeing 717 mated with a CRJ-900. It has this, the, the body and the wing, the body of a, of a, I guess a, a McDonnell Douglas rear-mounted engine aircraft with engines that I think are the same engines that There's are the CRJ. CF-34s? And the wings of uh, I I can't quite tell what the wings are, but this thing just looks it doesn't look right. Yeah, so it's a GE CF thirty four dash ten A engine, which they have an exclusive contract with General Electric for the engines. The wing is an Antonov product that was designed specifically for the new frame, and the frame is not new at all. This is and this is a slightly controversial thing, depending on who you believe. The Chinese claim it was a new design. There are those who say they saw the original blueprints and they were the Douglas Aircraft Company blueprints with a new title block pasted over in Chinese where the original was supposed to be. So you are one of probably very few Americans who have ever actually flown on this thing. And tell us about it. I was certainly the only American on my day. That's yeah, uh, that part was obvious to me. So, you know, we talked a little bit about how crazy the construction, whatever of it is. There's only three of them that have been delivered. And this is a plane that's been under development since 2002. You know, just a decade or so late in delivery. The third was only delivered a couple weeks ago and still isn't actually in service. They fly it once a day. They go one place and they come back. And you get on board and, you know, it's it's one of those things like as I, you're talking about when you see a picture of it. When I saw it in person as well, you look at it and you're like, this looks a little familiar, but like not quite right. And everything about it, both inside and out, was a little bit of, but not quite right. It's a 2-3 cabin with the five seats across, because that's, you know, what the MD-80 and the 88 family was like. And it's pretty comfortable inside, honestly. The overhead bins are of an old, old classic style. There's nothing new there. You walk to the back of the plane, and two rows from the back, well behind the wing, all of a sudden there's like a gap, and there's exit row. And it's like a what? super exit row because there's doors back there. Huh. So if you remember, like an MD-80 has that side door. Yeah, yeah. On the port side. This one has doors on both sides. In that, Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at a picture of it now and there's an exit door like maybe two rows two. up from, yeah. the, from the engines. Oh, no, no, no. Two rows up from the back of the plane. It's right at the engines. Wow. If you're standing in that exit with the door open, I guarantee you could touch the engine. Huh. That's probably a bad idea. Yeah. Well, I certainly uh, wouldn't pop the doors while the engines were running. Which happens in emergencies. <laughs> or, you know, in China. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Just throw some coins in the engine. I was going to say, no one threw any coins, because that's a long oh, throw boy. from the boarding jet bri- or the boarding stairs. But Ooh, We're going to get some hate mail this week. Yeah. <laughs> Happy to help, fellas. Happy to help. It was just weird inside. And, you know... Overall, the, the the flight itself was fine. It's loud on board. Not that surprising. They travel with two mechanics who take the exit row seats. Still? On on regular flights? No, they were on mine, so I assume yes, still. Maybe they you know saw a white guy coming and decided <laughs> to make me feel comfortable. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the two engineers still fly with it, and they got their cool jumpsuits on. There's a security guard, security officer on board. Which is fairly typical in China. Yeah. This is my first domestic Chinese flight. I've been led to believe that that is normal. But they've got, it's got a first class cabin. It's got, you know, no one was booked in that. But they have the <laughs> How cabin. How would you even do that? Sea Trip sold it as a first class, would sell me first class seats. Wow. 
I didn't book him. I think it, I don't remember if it was because I thought it was too expensive or just stupid, but I decided yes. to do the coach thing. My only regret is I didn't get a window seat. Ah, uh, it, it couldn't have been full though, right? Could was, you have moved around? I, so there was one row that looked pretty good and I thought I was going to get it. I thought I was going to get it. I was too nice and I waited like a half second too long. And a couple that had window aisle of the three set split up to take window window. And I was uh, in a row of all three on the aisle and I was moving forward and I lost it. And I was pretty annoyed at that. And I ended up taking the aisle in that one instead because at least there were still only two of us instead of three. There's also a guy across the aisle from me who had the window seat and didn't sit there for landing, but I couldn't get oh. it because by the time I realized he wasn't going to go back to his seat, I couldn't get in there. Certainly not without creating an international incident, and I decided not to do that. So Probably a good idea. Yeah. So just yesterday on Twitter, because Comac is on Twitter, which is still sort of. relatively surprising, they tweeted congratulations to, I guess, themselves that they the ARJ-21 has operated 30,000 passengers. 30,000 passengers have flown on the ARJ-21. And they said it happened last week. You were on it last week. I was. So we don't know for sure if you were passenger 30,000. I'm taking it. But we're not going to tell you, no, you weren't. And I'm betting you, Comac is not going to say you weren't. Yeah. So let's just run with it. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a great honor, truly, to be able to represent the aviation community in this way. A few people I'd like to thank. No. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, Jason, you're the one who helped me figure out the routes it was flying on. So I do owe you thanks on that front. Well, you're you're quite welcome. That's true. We, We have actually talked about this the ARJ for for months now because it is sometimes in the OAG schedule, sometimes not. It's it's really difficult to actually track down the damn thing. You know, you say that that it's sort of sometimes in the schedule, sometimes not. I think that's because legitimately it's only sometimes flying and sometimes not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the flight schedule goes out like three hundred thirty something days in the future, but sometimes it it just disappears. Yeah. Entirely. When even when we thought it was supposed to be in the schedule. It wasn't actually available for sale. I couldn't find it in, you know, looking at GDS sales. I couldn't see it listed as a flight zeroed out. It just like it wasn't there. And then one day it showed back up and I was able to book it. You got very lucky because I know other people that have tried. Will Horton from Hong Kong, I believe, booked it and got there and found himself on an A319 or something and and probably cried a little bit because that would have sucked. Yeah, I would have. And... Just so you know, we landed, I flew to Hefe, H-E-F-E-I. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, but as in just another random town you've never heard of that has 8 million people and a gorgeous of airport. Course. I have never been, but I'll put it on my list. No, nah, I wouldn't do that, but it's got a gorgeous <laughs> airport. You know, it's one of the sort of modern, new, the new era Chinese airports built within but the last it, 10 exactly. years. That's... And it's 20 or 30 gates, super futuristic glass steel design. It was gorgeous. That's China. That's what we talked to John Ostrauer a couple episodes ago, that China is, is, their aviation market is just exploding and they are future-proofing. So they expect this airport to be futuristic and eventually it'll be filled up with little (laughs) ARJ-21s. I'm not betting on that. Okay. (laughs) Seth, I want to thank you for joining us and bringing us along on what is, I think, too many adventures and and one Never conversation. Enough. Never enough adventures. But, but hopefully we'll have you back on sometime soon and we can, yeah. I don't know if we can top this, but we'll, we'll try our best. I'll try to do something else ridiculous and stupid so you guys will have me back. Thanks so much. Well, we are Excellent. going to Orlando soon, so let's see if we can do something stupid down there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> take, take care, guys. 
right. Thanks so much. <laughs> Seth seems to be having a lot more fun than, than you or I lately. Yeah, I mean, I've traveled a lot with Seth over the years. We've been every corner of the world, South America, Asia, all over the place. And he left me behind on this trip, and I'm kind of upset because I'm incredibly jealous of him flying the ARJ-21. Well, I mean, we'll we'll just have to, you know, go back and do it again. Okay, let's go. All right. So Seth has been working on the, you know, the the Operation Carelift and now, you know, the operation gift lift kind of the the next stages but you know some of the other things that are happening in puerto rico is is the the loons have been on station and they tried to be on station so they're they're you know they're doing their best and from what i've heard is it's working kind of sometimes there's a um, lot of issues with this right i mean completely up front they have never deployed loon in a real world scenario and this was really a a wing it hope it works if it does fantastic but they can't these are balloons they can't control the wind and the wind tells them to go wherever the wind tells them to go which unfortunately has not been over puerto rico and that doesn't even really mention the tech aspects of phones have to be updated to even talk to the balloons which is really difficult if you don't have any connectivity which defeats the purpose of the whole thing but Really good on X by Google, or who are they these days? It's it's just X. X or whatever. I don't yes. care. It's Google. <laughs> you know it's Google. We know it's Google. We'll just say it. But AT&T, of all companies, has done something a little bit interesting, actually. A lot of it interesting. They've been a couple companies. Sprint, AT&T have been touting this idea of a cell phone tower on a drone, which never really made any sense to me. But they finally got to test it in a real-world scenario, and it's not really... A drone, it, it's a single rotor helicopter, I guess, that weighs more than 55 pounds. So they, AT&T had to get special permission from the FAA to actually fly it because anything over 55 pounds, you have to get special permission. And it's not really a drone, I, could, I mean, I guess it is, but it's also tethered. It's not fully remote. So it has right. this cord that provides power for it so it can stay aloft and data so it can transmit the signal back down. It hovers 200 feet up above the ground and can cover a 40 square mile area with LTE connectivity, which is pretty great because if you've ever seen a temporary cell tower, they're maybe, I don't know, 40, 50 feet tall. They don't provide a huge coverage area. 200 feet is way higher than any temporary cell tower is going to get. So this is pretty cool to see how technically drone technology is being used down in Puerto Rico. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was pretty impressed, but I, I saw the the picture, and, and I'll see if we can toss one in the show notes because it it looks like it looks like an RC helicopter with cell technology on it and a, a tether, you know, down back down to the ground. And I was I saw the picture and I was like, what is that? And then read the story and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. So hopefully, you know, hopefully they can get enough of them where it actually, you know, helps. Yeah, it's kind of kind of crazy. I think it, it it was in San Juan city limits. They're moving it out to more remote areas, but they're still going to have the issue of you need to be able to connect it to something to connect to the rest of the world. So I guess they connect it to a satellite terminal. I, I don't really know. There's a lot of logistics here, but it's 
super cool and maybe it has adsb and we can track it and you can find where your phone will work in puerto rico yeah for me like a lot of this has been it just goes to show you how much you take for granted you know with, with modern technology you know just, yeah. you, you just assume that your phone's gonna work yeah I, i've been following some of the cell phone companies repairing the network down in puerto rico and the cell towers quite literally blew away they're, they're gone there there is no more tower so you can't obviously rebuild that whole thing just like their power grid overnight. So they've come up with these really creative solutions to provide coverage again. And here's hoping that we hear more about that and, and that they continue to, to work on it and, and get things back up. If they could put some of those over Manhattan and give me cell phone coverage in you know, New York City, that'd be cool too. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Yeah, no, you, you, we'll see what we can do, I guess. Yeah, bring in the drones. There you go. So big news for Airbus today, the A350-1000 has ESA and FAA certification. So it's ready to go. Yeah, joint certification. It's ready to, well, I don't know if it's joint certification, but concurrent certification. It's ready to go. Almost exactly a year to the day from the first flight too. 362 days from first flight, which is, I mean, pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, I It's not a brand new airplane, but- I, I can click the photos app on my phone, click year ago today, and the pictures of me at the first flight pop right up. So it is quite literally a year ago today. It's pretty amazing. So well done to them. And Qatar is taking delivery of the first one by the end of the year. So, I mean, in, in just a little over a year, they went from first flight to commercial delivery. Pretty good. Not bad. Not bad at all. And episode 20 of Avtalk will come from Stockholm, Sweden. Jason and I will head over there in just a few weeks, in the beginning of December, and we'll record episode 20 from Stockholm. We are going to sit down with with people in the office at Flight Radar 24 and talk a little bit about how Flight Radar 24 works, how we track flights, and we're also going to talk about some of the things that are coming up in the future. And so I think that's going to be a fun thing to do. And I'm glad that, Jason, you're, you're able to join us over in Stockholm for that. It's, this will be good for me, too, because all of this is literally new to me. So I'll be learning right along with you. It'll be great. And and so what we wanted to do is ask people, if you have questions, specific questions about how Flight Radar 24 works or how tracking flights in, in general works, send us an email, podcast at fr24.com, or tweet us at FlightRadar24, or send us a message on Facebook, FlightRadar24, and we will be happy to to kind of put everything together and answer as many questions as we possibly can about how the service works, about how tracking flights works. If you have any burning questions about anything, we want to get those answered. And so I'm, I'm excited for this because I think it's going to be good to talk to some people. I mean, we're big av geeks, but we're not the most technical people in the world, shall we say. Hmm. So I'm excited to talk to some people who who are some of the most technical people in the world, or at least much more technical than we are. So I'm excited for this one. As am I. I can tell in your voice. So I think that's a good way to leave episode 19, and I'm looking forward to episode 20. Thank you so much for listening. We will see everyone in Stockholm next episode. As always, I'm Ian Pechnik, here with... Jason Rabinowitz, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.